0: pandemic, we've been hearing more and more about the mental health crisis affecting teenage girls. My guest on the program today is a journalist with a special interest in the well-being of young women. In her own adolescence, she was hospitalized nine times for anorexia, which she's written about in a new book. And in recent years, she has dug into the issue of gender dysphoria, trying to understand the surge of cases among teen girls. It was coverage of gender issues that ultimately led her to part ways with The Guardian after 22 years with the paper. Hadley Freeman is a columnist and features writer for The Sunday Times in London and a best selling author. Her latest book is Good Girls, a story and study of anorexia. Hadley Freeman is my guest today. On Lean Out. Hadley, welcome to Lean Out.
1: Thank you so much, Tara. I'm so thrilled to be here.
0: I'm really excited to have you on. This is such a remarkable book, and uh, I think it's going to be great to get a chance to speak about it today. I want to start with this. Anorexia was very common when I was growing up. I'm Gen X. And I did know girls who were hospitalized for it. But in recent years, we have heard less about this. Mm -hmm. So I was surprised to read that rates of anorexia are going up for children under 12. Mm -hmm. And then not surprised to read that during the pandemic, there was a rise in hospital referrals. To start today, just walk us through how common is anorexia in 2023 and who is most likely to suffer from the illness?
1: Well, the rates of anorexia have generally stayed about the same. In Britain, at least, it's about 1% of the female population suffer from anorexia. But like you say, the hospital referrals have gone up, particularly during the pandemic. It is suffered by boys and men. Uh, they represent about 10% of the patients, according to all the doctors I spoke to in Britain. Um, but it's generally suffered by girls and women. And it almost invariably starts around adolescence and puberty.
0: Mm-hmm. And to, to sort of think through the topic, you go through your own personal mm-hmm. story, as well as the stories of young women that you met in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And so for listeners, for context, starting at 14, you had uh, nine psychiatric hospital stays, about two and a half years of brief stays at home in between. And there was one line that just stood out so much to me from the book. So much of anorexia, you write, is about suppressed conversations. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that and how that plays played into your own personal story.
1: Well I actually can't take credit for that line. That came from the ward manager of one of the eating disorder wards that I was on and she what she was meant was that anorexia is a way for girls and women, I'm just going to say girls and women for just ease of communication. I am aware that boys and men get it too. But it's a way that girls and women express something without having to articulate it. Because I think a lot of girls find it very hard to say what would be quote unquote unpleasant feelings, to voice unpleasant feelings, whether it's anger, sadness, fear, self-loathing, shame. And instead they express it through their bodies. This is why I find it basically shockingly simplistic when people describe anorexia as a desire to be thin. I know that is what anorexics say when they're in the grip of the disease, but it is not about that. It's about wanting to look ill so that people know something is wrong with you without having to say it.
0: Mm. It's That's just so striking to me. And also there is this theme of wanting to opt out of the world in general. Mm-hmm. I'm wanting to opt out of womanhood in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's another striking paragraph where you're quoting two doctors and you write, they cite as external factors, the internet, in particular, Instagram and online pornography, both of which in their own ways, make some girls feel that they just don't fit in as females. This is Mm -hmm. a feeling many anorexics can relate to the sense that your body is making promises to the outside world that you can't keep. Tell me a little bit more about that and how that played out for you.
1: Well, I certainly felt that. So those two doctors, um, Dr. Anna um, Hutchinson and Melissa Midgen, worked in both uh, youth gender care and also with eating disorders. So they were talking about that desire that a lot of girls feel about not not to be women. And I was absolutely terrified of becoming a woman. And that underpins so much of anorexia, which is why, as I said, it generally starts during puberty. Um, I was quite emotionally immature for a 14-year-old, which is when it started with me. But I think a lot of young girls find it very hard to be a woman and to see their body changing and seeing boys and men reacting to their bodies in a different way not knowing what that means, you know, not knowing really what sex means necessarily. Obviously they know what sex is but, you know, what they're supposed to do. It is a very scary time and I think people forget that with a lot of girls. You know, they because we idealize young female beauty so much, we forget how scared a lot of girls feel inside when they're suddenly, you know, looking physically, sexually available and they don't feel that way yet. Um, so for a lot of anorexia is about trying to stay, you know, not trying not to be a woman, trying to stay a child, really. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. And for you personally, I mean, what one of the things that's incredible about this book is it is a very hopeful story. You did make a full recovery. That is an incredibly wonderful thing to read about. Um, But so that readers understand, I mean, what did where did the illness ultimately take you? What, What did your lowest points look like for you?
1: So um, as you said, Tara, I was in hospital nine times um, and those stays were, uh, I think there was one two weeks day, but in generally they were either three, they were three to six months. And the lowest point was when I'd been dropped by my first psychiatrist after a year of treatment from him, um, because I wouldn't drop out of school to focus on my recovery. And so I didn't really have anyone looking after me other than um, our family doctor, what we call GP in Britain. Um, and my weight dropped so low that my heart was kind of stopping working. I was having really bad arrhythmia and palpitations because my heart was cannibalizing itself really, And I was fainting all the time in the streets and at school. And that was when our family doctor sort of yanked me out of school and put me in a general hospital which is the worst place for an anorexic. But that was definitely at my lowest weight. Um, I had no, I had almost no hair at this point. Most of my hair had fallen out. I had body hair growing all over my body um, in an attempt to keep me warm. My lips were all cracked and bleeding. My knuckles were all bleeding because I also had OCD hand washing. I mean, I was no one's idea of a beauty at that point. I looked basically like roadkill.
0: Mm. And it's it, it was interesting for me to read that the hospital was a safe place for you that you enjoyed being there and that one of the turning points was your doctor saying to you, if you lose weight, I'm not putting you back in the hospital, you have to stay at home and eat at home and have a nurse assigned to you at home. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about what it felt like being in the hospital with these other young women and why that was such a turning point for you.
1: Well, at times, you know, of course, being in hospital is terrible uh, for anyone suffering from anorexia. You have to eat. You have to put on weight. You're surrounded by other girls and women who have anorexia. And sometimes you get support from the other patients. And other times it can be full of bullying because no one knows how to bully an anorexic better than another anorexic. And, you know, there can be a lot of teasing about who weighs more, who had the bigger portion at lunch, all that kind of stuff. But the secret that patients with anorexia don't want to say ever is that being in hospital is a lot preferable to being at home because in hospital, someone's making you eat. It's not your fault. You don't have to feel guilt about it. It's not your responsibility. It's not your fault that you're not exercising 18 hours a day. It's not your fault that you're not able to throw up after eating all the time. It's someone else's responsibility. And you know, it, it sounds sort of counterintuitive, but that is a huge relief for a lot of girls and women with this eating disorder because, you know, they just can't bear the guilt of eating themselves. So it's great for someone to make them do it so they don't have to deal with it. And the reason it was such a turning point for me when my therapist said to me after my ninth admission and I was losing weight at home again, and she said to me, I'm not going to put you back in hospital because I think it's too comfortable for you there now. Um, you'd have a you'd have a nurse at home. And this was unbearable to me the idea of being in the outside world constantly overlooked by a nurse living with my parents everyone knowing I'm eating in the outside world which to me was the biggest shame of all to show that I have appetite to outside people at least in hospital we all know it's not our fault in the outside world it would look voluntary that I was eating and that was it for me I just, I couldn't do it I, I realized I, I couldn't bear to have that situation in the outside world I'd rather feed myself just enough to stay the same way and go back to school which is what I wanted to do
0: Mm -hmm. And another turning point that really stood out was uh, when you were in the hospital, a woman Mm -hmm. having a meltdown at a meal. Mm -hmm. And tell me, walk me through that moment and why, why that offered a little hope.
1: It is very strange what will trigger someone's recovery in the same way it's very unexpected what will trigger someone's, you know, descent into the illness. But for me, it was I was sitting in the dining room. We all ate together, all the patients, our three meals and three um, snacks a day. And the woman opposite me had just had her 32nd birthday and we were eating breakfast and she started having, you know, this kind of real screaming, crying fit about that. She felt there was more butter on her toast than on anyone else's. And this happened at every single meal. You know, someone would feel they had a bigger piece of pie or they had more roast potatoes or something. There was We were all always comparing our plates. And I looked at her and this thought just came into my head. And it it was, I will not be having tantrums over toast when I'm 32 years old. And I was 17 then. And that was the first time in about three years that I thought, Maybe this doesn't have to be my life. Before that, I thought this will be my life. I will be like these other women in hospital with me, who were all in their 40s and 50s, and had spent their entire lives going in and out of hospital. I thought, well, that'll be me because I can't bear the guilt of feeding myself in the outside world. I'd rather be fed up in hospital, go out, lose the weight again, then go back into hospital and be stuck in that cycle. Which, you know, more women than people realize, that is how their lives are. Um, but that was the moment when I thought, no, I, this is not going to be my life.
0: Mm. And it was significant, too, that you decided to stay in school and that that was a bit of a lifeline for you. And you do find yourself then at university and and this sort of vision of a of a different kind of life begins to emerge. Mm. And, you know, you're still struggling, but but you write. I was spending 16 hours a day learning French vocabulary and the dates of Renaissance paintings. But only six months earlier, I could never have imagined such freedom. Right. Tell us what, what your life was like during that period.
1: So that was. um. That was when I went to boarding school, really. And I, so I was in the senior year of high school at that point. And I was doing two years in one. It was kind of a special, special school that allowed for that, mainly for kids who'd been thrown out of their previous school. And I was eating the same food every single day because I thought if I did, it didn't put on weight the day before, it won't put on weight today. And I ha- kept a little drinks cooler in my room where I could keep all my yogurts and, you know, bags of vegetables that I would snack on. And I just felt elated. I couldn't I couldn't believe it. I, I'd gotten out of hospital. I was... Having, you know, a normal-ish life, like uh, no one really would look at me and think, oh, that's a typical 18-year-old. But I had friends who weren't psychiatric patients. Um, I was going to French and history of art and English literature lessons. Um, I was applying to university. I mean, this was a life that had seemed impossible just a few months before. And suddenly it was stretching out in front of me.
0: Mm. And so after you do go to university, and then afterwards, you become a fashion journalist. And I I loved reading about that. Because, I mean, of course, in some ways, that's the belly of the beast in in Mm. terms of body image issues. And and yet, you know, given the climate of safetyism that we're in right now, one might think that you would avoid that, but you didn't, and it didn't cause you to relapse. What are your thoughts on, on why?
1: Well, I, you know, it, I know why people find it strange that when I left university, I became a fashion journalist. But the thing is, fashion models, fashion magazines, they never played any part, really, at all in my illness. When I became ill at 14, I never even looked at a fashion magazine. I had no idea who Cindy Crawford and Kate Moss were. They weren't in my mirror. They weren't in my, you know, windscreen at all. And... So, you know, people do think, oh, this causes eating disorders, that causes, you know, whatever. Those kind of triggers, I do think, are irrelevant. I really do. And, you know, I say at the beginning of the book, the thing that triggered me was just a friend at school saying how how she wished, a a very thin friend saying that she wished she was normal-sized like me. And to me, that totally spun me out. And the next thing that kind of spun me out was I was watching When Harry Met Sally with my parents, and there's a scene in it and when Harry and Sally have bumped into Harry's ex-wife, and Harry's says, um, her legs look bigger. Do you think she's retaining water? (laughs) To me, I mean, anyone else would think like, ha ha, Harry's trying to make himself better by suggesting his wife looks dumpy or something. But to me, I thought, oh my God, I need to worry about how my legs look, not just my stomach. And oh my God, water puts on weight. So Mm -hmm. you can't predict what triggers are. I do think people's obsession with triggers is basically a, a grasp for control that doesn't exist. And, you know, I understand why people look at the fashion world and think it's obsession with female thinness is weird. And I agree with that. I do think it's weird. I think the fashion world's obsession with thinness You know, it is articulating a cultural language around us and, you know, and kind of enhancing it. And anorexia is an expression of unhappiness that uses the cultural language of not eating. Um, So there is a connection between the two, but it's really simplistic to say vogue or fashion causes eating disorders. And in any case, like I've also interviewed a lot of celebrities and I've met far more celebrities with eating, with clear eating disorders than any fashion model that I ever came across in my Mm -hmm. 10 years at the
0: fashion desk. Mm. Um, and in this book, you do touch on gender issues and, mm-hmm. and reading your memoir, it, it makes perfect sense why you've become interested in these issues and in this debate mm-hmm. over transgenderism. Um, you write at one point, eating disorders and gender dysphoria are disorders of the body, body obsession, body hatred, body alienation. When did you first start getting interested in this topic? And, and what kind of made you decide to, to take this on as a topic?
1: Well, I think like a lot of people, I first really started thinking about it with, um, thank you, Kardashians, Caitlyn Jenner. And when Caitlyn Jenner was given a Woman of the Year award by some fashion magazine, which I can't remember, maybe Glamour or something. And it was the year she was also being investigated for causing the death of a woman through dangerous driving, which she was then let off for. But I, I thought this was quite interesting, where the idea of transition, what, you know, kind of was being so amplified by the media and applauded in a certain way. And of course, I wanted anyone to live the life they should, but no one was really explaining how someone who would lived as a male their entire lives could feel like a woman. I wasn't hearing, I, I was interested because I'm a woman and I don't know if I feel like one. So I started thinking about it, but I wasn't, you know i wasn't in uh, getting into the battlefields what really kind of piqued my interest more was the story from uh, the story that came out about young people particularly young teenage girls who were suddenly being represented disproportionately at youth gender clinics. So at JIDS, which is the only NHS clinic for gender dysphoric young people and children in England and Wales, uh, although it's about to be shut down, there was a story in 2020 saying I think it was 74% of the patients there were teenage girls. And that really struck a chord with me because it's about 90 to 95 of patients at anorexia clinics that are teenage girls and I started thinking about this more and I live in a part of London um, which is a lot like I imagine certain parts of Toronto and or like Brooklyn kind of liberal very liberal people often working in the media um, and I see a lot of teenage girls around and they'd be wearing their baggy clothes and binding their breasts and you know sometimes shaving their heads and they looked a lot like the girls I'd been in hospital with I didn't want to um, get into what I know is such a passionate argument by just pulling opinions out of my backside. So I went off and interviewed three former doctors who worked at JIDS, who now work in eating disorder healthcare, as well as various adolescent uh, psychiatrists and therapists and psychoanalysts and neurospecialists. And they all said to me, you know. The feelings that have been traditionally expressed through anorexia for these teenage girls, such as a fear of growing up, a fear of womanhood, what does womanhood mean, fear of being sexualized, a fear of their own sexuality is now being expressed through gender dysphoria for a lot of these girls. And Anna Hutchinson, who I mentioned earlier, who worked at JIDS, um, said to me something that I think really rang true. She said, in every generation, there's a symptom pool. And you go down to the symptom pool and you pull out the symptom through which you can express the emotions you're feeling. And what for a while, there was anorexia, and there was bulimia, then there was cutting, and now there's gender dysphoria. And I think the thing with the teenage girls and gender dysphoria, which is what I'm talking about in particular, is people really need to remember that girls and women, but particularly teenage girls, have traditionally always expressed their unhappiness through their bodies. Teenage boys tend to express unhappiness outwardly. You know, they get in trouble at school, they get into fights. Girls cut and starve themselves, and now they bind the breasts down in a lot of way in a lot of circumstances. And sometimes starve themselves. There's also a huge overlap between eating disorders and particular teen gender dysphoria. And there was a strain of thought for a while that this was just, oh, well, the reason that is, is because these teens, whether they're males or females, are starving their bodies to look less like their biological sex. But as one of the doctors I spoke to, Anastasis Spiliadis, who also worked at JIDS, said that is too simplistic. They, You know, there is you can't just separate them like that. These are expressions of embodied distress. They are expressing their unhappiness through their bodies. As I say in the book, I am not like, saying all trans people are anorexic or all anorexics are trans people. I'm saying teenage girls have always expressed unhappiness through their bodies. And if people don't want to look carefully at why... Teen girls are disproportionately wanting to be boys because they they're scared it will upset their ideology. Well, that is not showing great care for these teenage girls. We really need to ask why this is so common now among teenage girls in particular.
0: Mm. And Hadley, it's such a third rail topic. In some ways, it you know, especially in North America, it's the ultimate third rail topic. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder. I'm sure you get asked this a lot. I get asked this a lot because I write and talk about controversial things. But what do you think it is about you, about your <laughs> personality, that allows you to go into these areas that nobody wants to touch?
1: <laughs> um, I think I I really like to hear from you, Tara, why you think it you do it, too. But I think for me. I was so scared for so long of saying anything that would upset anybody. And this is partly what led to the anorexia was I just wanted to be, I was a total people pleaser for like the first 35 years of my life. Um, And at a certain point I realized being that way was only hurting myself and the people who I was scared of upsetting didn't necessarily know more than me. And I feel like on the subject of unhappy teenage girls using their bodies to express their unhappiness, i know quite a lot about that subject and i'm not going to be shouted down about it by men on the internet i'm i'm really not um and i feel enormous compassion for these girls who i see and who i've met um and who I talked to in my neighborhood. Um because I remember what it was like, how scary it was. And also to feel like you don't fit in. You don't look, as Anna Hutchison and Melissa Midget said, you don't look like the girls on Instagram and you don't look like Kim Kardashian. You don't look like the girls in pornography. Um therefore you must you probably aren't a girl. Like I know what that felt like too. And I think it's kind of disgraceful how people are rushing to assume one thing when anyone who employs critical thinking on this topic can see something else is going on.
0: Mm. It it is interesting. And I I think with with third real topics in general, I mean, uh, for me, I think I'm actually quite an agreeable person. It doesn't come sort of naturally for me to say controversial things or Mm -hmm. ask Mm -hmm. controversial questions. It's just that I care more about other principles than I do about being yelled at in the internet or the fallout. I just care about other things more. I care about preserving the ability to have open debate and the ability to talk through these really contentious issues. And what could be more contentious than this? I mean, I've also, I've interviewed trans writers. I've, Mm. I know people who have trans children mm-hmm. this is mm. there's a lot of pain uh, tied up in all of this but i do think we have a responsibility to the, the younger generation to to begin to unpack this and to to understand what's happening and to make sure that these young vulnerable kids are being looked after properly
1: i think we also just really need to ask ourselves, when you're scared of saying something that you feel very strongly is true, that is based on, you know, your own experience or what you've read or what doctors have told you, you really need to ask yourself why you're scared and who is scaring you. I think that is, that is not how North America is supposed to be. That's not how the West is supposed to be. We shouldn't be scared of expressing a different opinion. Um, And I also, I'm sure you've experienced this, Tara, like, you know, the first time you get loads of people screaming at you online is pretty over overwhelming. And Mm -hmm. you think, oh my God, that's it. My life is over. And then you realize, oh no, your life goes on. And actually people screaming at you online, isn't the end of all things. And as long as you don't lose yourself, I mean, I really admire how you, Tari, you know, it's very easy if you're a heterodox thinker to tip over into just contrarianism and you don't like you keep it, you know, you keep it like a clear perspective. And I understand there's that temptation. Some people go that way. They're like, oh, I like getting a reaction. No, I don't. That's not the point. The point is you just say what's true and try to help people and give voice to people and encourage people to not be scared of saying what they truly believe in their heart of hearts is true
0: mm. yes I I agree with you completely that that we have to be able to 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 speak what we see as reality and to mm-hmm. to, to have those conversations And I I want to turn now and, and talk to the media a little bit talk about mm-hmm. the media a little bit you mm-hmm. you you left The Guardian um, after mm-hmm. 22 years over this topic mm-hmm. uh your resignation letter to the editor Kath Finer was leaked. Um, mm-hmm. you wrote, in that uh, that the paper has become internally dysfunctional with writers and editors alike all terrified, as we're just speaking about, of mm-hmm. saying the wrong take. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something I relate to. Obviously, I I left the CBC uh, for similar reasons. I was worried about our coverage, about a stifling climate of groupthink and this fear of cancel culture that I thought was hindering our ability to do our jobs. You say that you were censored, that you were told mm-hmm. not to write about gender. Um, walk us through what that looked like for you in the newsroom.
1: Well, um, I, you know, I do want to say, first of all, it's not, as you say, it's not unique to The Guardian. You know, I've read about what you went through at CBC and, you know, Barry Weiss at the New York Times, and there's been stuff at the Washington Post, and there was an amazing piece, I think it was on The Intercept last summer, about similar things going on in activist groups, such as the Guttmacher Institute and Planned Parenthood. So there is this problem at liberal organizations, where suddenly it used to be all about Fostering open conversation has suddenly switched in the past few years. To no, we only endorse a single perspective, and anything that is see- that offends one person, well, that is seen as you know beyond the pale. We can't have that opinion. In terms of what happened to me, um, well, I think as I say in the letter, you know, I was told that they didn't want. Um, women to be writing about the gender issue because it got too much of a backlash online, which kind of proved my point that a lot of the um, noise around the gender issue is quite misogynistically driven, you know, that women get such a bigger backlash when they write about it than men do. I'm sure it's the same in Canada, in Britain, certainly female columnists such as Janice Turner or myself or Helen Lewis get far more of a backlash when we write about it than someone like James Kirkup, who also writes about it very prominently. Um, and there were, and I also said in the letter, there were um, people I wanted to interview, such as J.K. Rowling and Martina Navratilova, and I was, and as as well as women, I don't know if this was covered in Canada, but women such as Maya Forstatter and Alison Bailey, who um, launched uh, legal cases against their places of employment because they felt they were fired because of being gender critical, as they as they call it. I call it reality-based, but people call it gender critical. Um and I was I was told no no and it wasn't just me other people asked too um, but we we always profile you know uh, or the Guardian always profiled um, trans activists and reviewed trans memoirs and I have no problem with that I want everyone to have a voice I, I really do but it's that is not how the other side in this argument um, at least at newspapers. Sees it, you know, only one side, one censorship. I want all debate. I want everyone to speak. Let's trust the readers to make up their own minds. You yeah. know, give them every, give them all the arguments. But that is apparently that's a quite unfashionable stance these days.
0: Mm. I also had heard you interviewed on the BBC's uh, Women's Hour, and you mm-hmm. talked about an activist group having had come to The Guardian and and given a presentation and having pointed to two of your articles as uh, Mm -hmm. examples of transphobic journalism. What were you saying in those articles?
1: Um, They were so mild when you look back at them. It's it's almost amusing. Um, One of them was, I think it was about Caitlyn Jenner. And I was asking very timidly and very gently, you know, what does that mean to feel that you're to feel like you're a woman? If if you've not been a woman, how would you know? And I don't feel like a woman, I just feel like me. Um, and if I was a man, I would be a gay man. I don't know. And I I mean I understood, I went into saying, I don't have experience. I just would like, you know, I'd be interested in hearing someone talk about it. And the other one was me saying that men need to stop shouting at women on the internet about what a woman is and isn't, which was a very big thing in Britain. I'm sure it was in Canada too, um, on Twitter, when you'd have these, like, we call them uh, woke bros here, kind of shouting at female columnists, like, you don't fucking know what a woman is. (laughs) I was like, I'm glad you do. Um, uh, I've only had three childbirths and endometriosis and breast cancer. But sure, you you tell me what a woman is. Why don't you? Um, so those were the articles, I believe. I wasn't there. I was in Los Angeles at the time um, for a story. Uh, and no one told me until about nine months later what had happened. But when I came back, that was when I was told that I wasn't allowed to worry about gender stuff anymore, which I'd hardly done anyway. Um, mm. It is It is amazing kind of looking back. I think that was 2018. That whole period when everyone was so jumpy and scared. And what made it really dizzying was it came so hard after the Me Too movement.
0: Mm, it was yes. all
1: about listening to women, protecting women's spaces, listen to women's lived experience. And suddenly it was like, nope, you're out now. This is the new line that we're all taking.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, the in terms of The Guardian, just to stick with that for, for one more moment, uh, they have responded to your criticisms. I, I know the statement that they sent to Women's Hour in part read, uh, the issues around trans people's rights and gender critical feminism are complex and can be polarizing and polarized. As such, The Guardian aims to feature a wide range of reporting and multiple perspectives on this topic. All writers work with their editors to decide the topics on which they write. This is a completely standard practice across the media. That is not censorship. It is editing. What do you make of that response?
1: Um, Well, you know, I totally respect what they're saying. And of course, you know, writers are edited. All I will say is in my 22 years being at The Guardian, I was never told before that, that I wasn't allowed to write about a subject. And I certainly never heard that a woman wasn't allowed to write about a subject. So that is to me that it does, it is not part of the normal process.
0: Mm. And do you, do you think the guardian has changed its coverage since you left? Um, <laughs> um
1: I don't really know. Cause to be honest, when I left, um, I canceled my home subscription for the guardian, which I'd had for
0: 25 years. So, I don't know. I don't mm. know how it's changed. And in terms of overall, I mean, there is somewhat you nothing the progressive left hates more than heretics. Mm. And I'm just curious. I mean, you come from this progressive paper. Ha, what Has there been fallout for you? And if so, what does that look like?
1: Um, yeah, I think you're totally right. I think what the progressive left hates more than anything is people who they thought was on, were on their side you know, going against the grain. And, you know, I feel like, you know, the anger that I've gotten, or, you know, on a much (laughs) bigger scale, J.K. Rowling or someone gets, is way bigger than their anger at, say, Putin. (laughs) It's sort of of extraordinary to see how much people really hate the author of Harry Potter books. Um, Yeah, I've gotten a lot of... um, Kick back from it. I lost a lot of friends at the paper. Um, I still have a lot of friends, I should say, from The Guardian, but I did lose people who I thought were my friends. Um, I wouldn't get commissioned from certain publications now. No question. Um, There's this kind of assumption always that I'm this frothing bigot, which I really don't think I am. I mean, you know, I have friends who have transitioned. Like you, I've got friends whose children have transitioned. Like, I've got no problem with Anybody living their life the way they want. But I think, you know, as humans and as journalists, we should be allowed to ask questions. You know, it's a very minor, you know, comparison, but, you know, I am. Jewish and people ask me questions like, is this anti-Semitic? Is this cartoon anti-Semitic? Or is it is it, you know, and is anti-Semitic to be anti-Zionist stuff? I'm happy for people to ask questions. Of course. How else do we learn from each other? Um, and I wrote a book about my grandmother and her brothers um before this one. And there's a lot of stuff there about, you know, complicated Jewish history. And people are asking me about it and asking if I thought my great uncle was a traitor and stuff like that. I'm happy to talk about that. I think. If I think only if you're very defensive and don't have answers, do you not want there to be discussion?
0: Mm-hmm. And just to close, Hadley, I wondered if we could just spend a moment on where the media is at right now. Mm-hmm. I, something I'm very concerned about. Um, I'm, I'm very concerned about freedom of the press. I'm very concerned about the sort of self-censorship that I see going on. Where do you think we're at with the mainstream media right now? and And where do we go from here?
1: Well, I'm going to be honest, uh, Tara, that you obviously know more about the Canadian press. But just from what I see in terms of America, I think some things are shifting. I thought it was really significant. Um, I think it was last month when there was this crazy open letter in the New York Times from a lot of New York times contributors protesting against the coverage of youth gender medication issues. And, um, and they named the reporters writing on it. And I think it was the executive editor uh, responded and defended his writers like that. I don't think would have happened in 2018. I t- I take that as a really hopeful sign and just on a purely narcissistic level. Um, this book got two really nice reviews in the New York Times. And again, I mm-hmm. don't know if that would have happened four years ago, given that I do have a chapter talking about the potential overlaps between gender dysphoria and eating disorders. So I find that hopeful. I think the papers that still want to be in the mainstream are slowly becoming a bit more moderate again and not allowing themselves to be bullied by um, the niche you know, extremes on either side, mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, other papers, they have just exited the mainstream, I think in some ways, or websites. And I think they will find that an economically unsustainable um, model after a while. Um, so, I, and I also think certainly in Britain, there seems to be um, a level of homeness and moderation returning to this in particular debate and more and more sports bodies are, you know, taking up the more scientific approach rather than an ideological approach. And that I also find heartening.
0: Mm. Well, that is a good place to leave it. It's uh, been such a pleasure to get to meet you and speak with you, Hadley. And thank you for this book. Thank
1: you so much, Tara. Great to be here.
0: Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.